Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for all of you and for the time that we have together as God's people to worship Him again, corporately. You know, it comes around quickly, week to week to week, and uh, it really is an anticipation and expectation of God's people as we're looking forward to it uh, throughout the week before and then the week after. It is fuel for our lives, how important it is to gather with God's people. If you happen to be at home listening and uh, maybe you've, you've sort of gotten into the habit of not coming, I just encourage you to be here with God's people. Every chance we can get to be here with God's people, to sing His praises, to look into each other's faces, to realize the corporate aspect of uh, our Christian identity, that we are part of the body of Christ. We're members of His body. Not just a bunch of saved individuals, but we are part of this corporate identity of the body of Christ. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 12, verses 14 to 20 is what we'll cover today. We are still in that period of time between the ninth and 10th plagues. So if you've been coming for a few months, you've, you've seen us just sort of go from plague to plague to plague to plague. And, and then we hit the ninth plague. And after that now, uh, today will be the second sermon we've had where uh, it's not uh, the tenth plague directly happening. And we are in that period just before you get to the tenth plague. The tenth plague is climactic. And so there are these various uh, important aspects to it that need to get fleshed out before the actual striking of the plague Uh, which will come to soon. Last week, the Passover was introduced, and we looked at the lamb, the meal, and the blood, really one of the high points of Scripture. Uh, We recognize that all of Scripture uh, is inspired by God. All of Scripture is profitable for us, but you probably will be more inclined to read the Gospel of John, say, than Obadiah. Uh, Nothing against Obadiah at all, Uh, but we recognize that there are portions of Scripture that really just uh, speak immediately to our our identity in Christ and what it is that we are called to do in this Christian life and in ways that just speak to the people of God. We talked about that with Romans, how Romans has had a special place in the hearts of God's people throughout the history of the church. Well, this passage that we looked at last week, the Passover, is one of those really high point passages in all of the Bible. Not more inspired in the ultimate sense, not more important. Uh, But we recognize a high point here in God's redemption, in God's revelation. And we looked at the lamb, the meal, and the blood. One lamb was to be selected per household or with neighbors if needed. And so if there weren't enough in the household to eat the lamb, then you could get together with your next door neighbors and, and eat a lamb together. The lamb must be a male, a year old. And without blemish. This is a spotless lamb without defect. It will be selected on the 10th day and then sacrificed at the same time at the end of the 14th day during twilight. So, this simultaneous sacrifice of the lambs for all the various households happening at twilight on the 14th day. And as I said last week, that gave God's people Four days, four days to make sure that they could make the necessary preparations to get the lamb, to care for the lamb, to even sort of begin to to recognize that, uh, that relationship there with the lamb, seeing it in its substitutionary aspect. And then, of course, giving people time to figure out who were, who were going to eat, uh, who were going to share the lambs, which neighbors were going to work together to eat each lamb. The lambs were to be roasted in fire with none left until morning. They would be eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread and in a state of readiness. Uh, This is probably one of uh, the most striking features of what we read last week is that they will eat this meal fully dressed with their sandals on. They'll have their cloak tucked into their belt ready to go like you would do on a journey or if if you were moving about. Uh, You would have to have that tucked so that you could move uh, freely, well, not freely, you could move quickly. And they had their staffs in their hands. What a picture 
of the faith of God's people just waiting a picture of anticipation. And I think it's interesting there just to consider that in some ways, as we understand the Christian life, it is collectively, all of our days, all of our years, it is a picture, or this uh, picture of, of God's people fully dressed with staff in hand is a picture of, of our entire Christian life. We live every day of the Christian life waiting, knowing in faith that God is going to act. He's going to come back for us. He's going to bring us to himself. And so we are waiting. We are awaiting people. And then there was the blood. The blood from each lamb was to be placed on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. An amazing picture as as God would go through. He would see the blood on the tops and on the sides of the doorways to all of the households of God's people. And he would pass over them. Now remember, this is a context of judgment. God is coming through as judge. He's coming through executing judgment. And as he's doing that, he's passing over his people. He's not judging his people. He's not executing judgment on his people on account of the blood. He sees the blood and he passes over them. So we read this in verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And we know all of this, as we discussed last week, all of this points forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, We see the the Passover uh, being in, in view as John describes the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19. And at the very beginning of his gospel, he has John the Baptist twice saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For John and for the other New Testament authors, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Through Christ's blood, painted over our lives, as it were, God passes over us. And here's the wondrous thing for us as Christians. We are assured this morning and every day of our lives that God will indeed pass over our sins. That God has passed over our sins. And in the day of judgment, as it says here, no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's the reason that the people of God are joyful. You know, we lose sight of this in our lives. We, we base our happiness on our circumstances. We're, we're circumstantial creatures. And when we start to fall into that, we look just like the world. The Christian, by contrast, is someone who is always joyful on account of the fact that God has liberated us from our sin guilt through the blood of his precious son. So Passover is a special text to us as Christians because it points forward to the very center of our Christian faith, to the very center of the gospel. So last week was the Passover introduced, and next week we'll come to the Passover being carried out. We'll see it actually in Force, but today our focus is the larger Passover feast. So the larger festival or feast that surrounds the entire Passover event. The festival known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After describing the Passover itself to Moses and Aaron, Yahweh moves into a description of the week-long festival that will follow. Now at this point, you might be tempted to check out. Right, okay, here we go. So uh, this is the sort of thing that you kind of uh, maybe dread even as you're reading through the Bible. You, you know the Passover is glorious and it points to Christ and it's just so obvious. We're getting into these sorts of things, these, these ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament, these religious practices of ancient Israel. So maybe you are tempted to check out and say, oh, here we go. We're getting to those ceremonial laws, those feasts, those sacrifices, the description of all those little utensils of the temple, those religious observances 
with ancient Israel that seems so distant and so far away from our everyday lived Christian lives. But without saying much more, because I think this will become clear as we go through it, let me just remind you in general of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. All Scripture, by the way, when Paul is writing this to Timothy, he is writing with the, the Scriptures being the Old Testament. Keep that in mind that as the apostles are moving around the Mediterranean world and they're preaching the gospel, the Scriptures are the Old Testament. That's what's in view. Now, of course, there are these letters being written, and we know the Gospels are written. All of this is being written and is about to be written. But when Paul wrote this to Timothy, the Scriptures were the Old Testament. And he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. That means that God intends to do that in you, in me, in us, through all the scriptures. And that includes these feasts. These passages that seem so obscure and so distant from our everyday lives. So before we look at details, ways that these things impact our lives, ways that these things are relevant for the Christian life, let's just remember in general terms that all of this is not only inspired. We tend to read those, those verses for the doctrine of inspiration or the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, and then we sort of walk away. But that's not all that's there. It's also the sufficiency of Scripture, the profitability of Scripture, the efficacy, power of Scripture. All of that is packed in to those verses. And how striking. To remember that Paul is immediately talking about the Old Testament text. So that being said, let's stand in reverence of this breathed out by God word. Let's reverently stand before him as we read his word together. Exodus chapter 12 verses 14 to 20. As I said, the Passover has just been described. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, leaven or yeast, For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold, by the way, I just got to say this. We read texts like that sometimes and we think, God, that's a little harsh. I mean, isn't that a little harsh? They eat a little leaven and they're cut off from Israel. The issue is always the faith of God's people. When we read these things, we are looking through the specific ordinances to the faith or the heart of unbelief that lies behind the obedience or the disobedience. And when we consider that, we realize how wicked it would be to disobey. Verse 16. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. A repetition is always a pointer to the seriousness of something that needs to be marked down. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. You can go ahead and be seated. 
Let's pray to God, ask for his grace as we come to this time of instruction. That's what this is. And by the way, this is a time of worship. So singing praises is not more worship. We tend to equate singing with worship. This is worship, what we're doing right now. And it is work. So just remember the two W's. Don't expect sermons to not be work. And don't think of them as anything other than worship. That's what we're all doing here during this time. Just as we were before when we sang. And just as we will be after when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's pray over this period of worship. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us the sacred scriptures. Your holy word. We thank you, Father, that you have breathed it out, that you carried along by, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as you gave us your very words. We do not have to guess what your will is. We don't have to guess at who you are. You tell us who you are and you tell us what you require of us. You tell us what you have done for us and what you will do for us. Father, we praise you that we are together again as this local family of, of God, as this local assembly of Christian believers. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified here in our time together today. We pray that your word would pierce our hearts, that it would bring its uh, weekly dose of conviction and comfort, that we would purge sin from our lives as a result of our time here today, and that we would cling to the blood of Christ, that we would take Uh, much rest and joy in the truths of the gospel and the certainty of what you have done and will do for us through Christ. God, we ask that you would unsettle us. Lord, we live in a very uh, leisurely, pleasure-loving, self-exalting culture. Lord, there are things that this people, uh, us, we need to hear this morning uh, that Maybe people in other parts of the world don't need to hear as loudly. Lord, jar us, unsettle us, pull us out of our worldliness, our love of worldly things. God, help us love you and serve you. Lord, we ask that you would bind our hearts together as a people and that all of the growing that comes through Scripture would be growth in love for one another. We ask that you would do these things today in us, among us, by the power of your Spirit, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So as you probably noticed, there's quite a bit of repetition. I mentioned it before, but there's actually quite a bit of repetition in this passage. And by the way, that just tells it that, that, that it just, the drum needs to be beaten many times. When there's repetition, we take notice because it just tells us this is so very important. It is worth repeating. It's like Paul at the end of Philippians. He says, we are to rejoice always. I got to say it again. He said, rejoice. So very important. And that is the case here as well. So important for God's people then. And if we understand it rightly, in light of Christ, so important for God's people today. But because it is repetitious, we're going to be jumping around within the passage a little bit uh, more today. So there are three things that we need to see, and you'll see those up on uh, the screen here. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's the title for the sermon this morning, because that's what this passage is about. Uh, And then we have here three things that we need to notice. So first, the perpetual observance. Second, the specific directives. And third, the double Motivation, the perpetual observance, the specific directives, and the double motivation. So let's begin first with the perpetual observance. Look at verse 14 and then the end of verse 17. This day shall be for you a memorial day. We have one of those as Americans. A memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then into verse 15, that first sentence, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And then drop down to verse 17, the end of the verse, it repeats what we read in verse 14. You shall observe this day 
throughout your generations as a statute forever. This is the language of commandment. God is putting a requirement on his people. This is a statute, an ordinance that must be observed. And notice it is a feast to the Lord. It is a feast to Yahweh. Uh, The name of Yahweh, the name of God, is always to be on the hearts and the minds and the lips of God's people. So it is an ordinance that must be observed to him. And as we think about this, going all the way back to Noah and Abraham, and I'm so convinced after having gone through Genesis that Noah and Abraham are really paradigmatic figures. They're they're paradigms for all of the rest of the Bible. We get these two figures at the very beginning, Noah and Abraham, and they teach us what it is to be of God. They teach us the pattern for all of humanity, and it's this. God commands and his people follow. All the way back to Noah, all the way back to Abraham, and that's precisely what we have here. God is giving a requirement. He's giving an ordinance, a statute. He's giving a command. And his people are to follow. They are to follow out of faith, and they are to follow as worship. This is not just raw, cold obedience. This is not just, okay, you say it, I'm going to do it. It's deeper than that. This is obedience that is carried along by trust in God and that is offered to God as praise. It is offered to God as adoration and worship. And we also need to consider here as we come to these directives, as we come to this command, this ordinance, that God is preparing his people to receive many of these at Sinai. So it won't be long before God's people will gather around the mountain. They will hear the thunder They will hear God's mighty voice and they will be given God's law. And so here we see the people being prepared to receive God's law. To be his people who obey him in all of life. And as you can see from the language, the Passover day prepared on the 14th and celebrated on the 15th really runs together with the festival from the 15th day to the 21st day. So there's some, there's some running together here between the Passover itself specifically and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows the Passover. And this means that the Feast of Unleavened Bread really could be considered the Passover feast. You could think of it as the Passover feast. And let me read you a, a verse from Ezekiel to kind of bear this out. Ezekiel 45 verse 21. In the first month, On the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover. And for seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. So do you see there how Ezekiel is basically equating the Passover with the feast of unleavened bread? They are distinct, but they are rolled together as one. One follows immediately after the other. You could say that the unleavened bread feast even contains the Passover, since the Passover occurred there at the beginning of the 15th day. And the Lord tells Moses and Aaron that this feast is to be perpetual. It is a statute forever, as it says in verses 14 and 17. Why? Why is it to be a perpetual feast, a statute forever? It is because it is a memorial As we read there in verse 14, it commemorates what God did in the Passover Exodus event. And so once again, the Passover and the Exodus are bleeding together. God brought his people out of Egypt as he passed over them and put to death the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. And so we see the two coming together, the Passover Exodus event. And this memorial, it says in verses 14 and 17, is to stand throughout your generations. One commentator says this, why such an emphasis on commemoration? And he answers it this way, because what is not carefully remembered by a community is very naturally and easily forgotten. You know, this is the reason that the regularity of the Lord's Supper is something that gets talked about and debated and practiced differently among Christian people. 
Because on the one, one hand, you have the concern that it not become just routine, that it not become just so familiar and just practiced in such a way that, that it loses its meaning and its weightiness. But on the other hand, we recognize the memorial nature of the Lord's Supper and the constant need that we have to be brought back, the constant need that we as God's people have to be reminded of what God has done in Christ. There is the need for these commemorations because what is not carefully remembered is very naturally and easily forgotten. And what's at stake here, what's at stake to be remembered is God's saving work. The Lord cares about the transmission of his mighty deeds throughout time. This is not something to be lost from generation to generation. Think about the emphasis in the Old Testament for teaching the next generation your children and your grandchildren. When your children grow up, explain these things to them. You find this kind of thing all throughout the Old Testament. And it is because from generation to generation, God's mighty deeds must be proclaimed. His glory, his glorious acts in history. You know, as we think about our life together as a church, uh, it's easy just to be focused on the immediate, the urgent, the now. It's easy for us as a church and as leaders of the church really just to be thinking in the present tense about what's going on in front of us, the issues of the day. But if we were wise and as we grow in God's wisdom, as a church we we would operate today with a view to 30 years from now. We operate today, we, we lead today, we build ministries today, we disciple today, minister and do missions today with an eye to what will be happening regarding the name of God, the praise of God, the memorial of God 30 or more years from now when many of us are gone. Many even having passed from this world It matters what happens from generation to generation to generation. The Lord's deeds must be proclaimed perpetually. Now, you may be thinking at this point that God saved people. God saved people. Don't practice this anymore. So, okay, you know, that's interesting. Uh, That's neat. The, The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Old Testament, Feast of ancient Israel. We don't practice that feast anymore, so I'm not really sure how this is relevant to me. And my answer to that would be, of course we do. Of course we practice this. Of course we still practice this. We practice the fulfillment of it every time we observe the Lord's Supper and go out from the Lord's Supper supper, to live holy, unleavened lives. Of course we still practice this as Christian people, rightly understood in fulfillment in Christ Jesus. We're going to see that here in a moment. So let's go now to our second point, and that is the specific directives. The specific directives. So look with me at verses 15 to 16, and then we're going to speed ahead to verses 18 to 20. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And then go to verses 18 to 20. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, You shall eat unleavened bread. So you can see how verses 18 to 20 repeat many of the elements there in verses 15 to 16. 
It is not just a general festival that must be observed, but God gives specific directives. So there is this general ordinance. This thing attached to the day of Passover, this thing, this ordinance, this requirement must happen in perpetuity in Israel. But it's not just that. God then proceeds to tell them precisely how they are to do it. He gives specific directives. He tells Moses and Aaron how they are to observe this feast. And let me just say this to us. We've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning, and especially as we think about Exodus and and really the whole Pentateuch. But it, it just reminds us continually that God is the author of his praises. We're not the author of God's praises. Uh, God, our praise is really uh, an echo of God's own word about his praises. Our praise to God, our worship of God is an outgrowth and a response to what God has shown us in his word and told us to do regarding worship. He is the author of his praises. Let me, let me also say this to us. It may be something that you haven't thought much about, but worship is far more about obedience than creative expression. Um, Creativity is a part of worship. We sing these old hymns and, and many new ones that are just absolutely rich and beautiful. How do we have those hymns? How do we have those songs? Uh, through the creativity that God has given individuals to write them. The image of God in man and the, the Grace of the gospel flowing through the hearts of God's people to compose these beautiful things, these Puritan prayers that we read and meditate on, these hymns and songs and spiritual songs that we have that we sing to God. So there is certainly creativity and creative expression that God has ordained and that reflects God and honors God as we worship him. But here's the problem. That's not what worship is about. Worship is not just art. That's not worship. Worship is submission. Worship is obedience. Worship is bowing before God and praising him in his own terms according to his own directives. It is more about obedience than creative expression, though we recognize the beauty of creative expression for those made by God and saved by him as well. So the Lord tells them that this festival will last seven days, seven days from the end of the 14th day up to the 21st day, and it is bracketed by a holy assembly. So it kind of gets kicked off with this, this holy gathering of God's people together, and then it ends with a gathering of God's people, a period set apart for the people to congregate in worship of God. It, it provides the, the, the impetus for the entire week, and then it caps off the week as God's people reflect on what they have been doing And on those beginning and end days, no work is to be done except the preparation of necessary food. So obviously this is festive in nature. This is a time of celebration. There is food that needs to be prepared. But that is it. All ordinary tasks. And you know, this is the case for us as we gather for worship on Sundays. You know, we could just get stuck in the ordinary. I I don't know about you. I'm a very routine kind of person. Uh, But even people who aren't routine kind of people, we move through life and we just get, we do the same thing. We go through the same motions. And we need to be jerked out of that to remember that life is more than just being like a cow grazing through the pasture getting the next bite. We are spiritual beings made in God's image, made for his worship and his praise. So sometimes our our heads need to be lifted up from the grass so that we can see the Lord more directly. And here we see that image. No work is to be done. The people are to spend time meditating. The people are to be focused entirely on the Lord Maybe as you come on the Lord's Day, it really is just for you a kind of time to worry about what didn't get done on Friday and to anticipate what you're going to have to do on Monday. Don't! Don't! Pick your chin up from the grass and look heavenward 
look to God. Set aside those cares. Set aside those worries and look to God. He takes care of us. He guides us. Has he not cared for us all along up to this point, up to this day? Have we not seen his faithfulness? Have we not seen his hand in every nook and cranny of our lives? Is he just going to drop us this weekend? Is he just going to drop next week off and forget about us? No. The same God who has been with us will continue to be with us. We can afford to redirect our minds away from these earthly cares. But we still haven't come to the heart of the feast. The heart of all of this is this whole unleavened bread business. No leavened bread. No bread with yeast. The Israelites must not eat leaven during those seven days. This command is everywhere in this passage. I'm just going to read them to you. You'll see how repetitious this is, just all throughout the passage. Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 18, you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 19, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Well, in case you didn't get the point, You're an ancient Israelite. No matter how old you are, you're going to get this point. It is emphatic. It is made abundantly clear. So what is the big idea about leaven? What's the significance of leaven? Why does this matter so much? Well, first of all, it gives the people seven days to remember the Passover event. It gives the people seven days to remember how quickly God brought the people out of Egypt. No time for bread to rise. No time for yeast. God delivered his people in an instant. And they were to be faithfully ready to leave in a moment. So ready. Forget yeast, all this yeast business. They don't even have time to grab their staff. They're supposed to have their staff in their hands. This is out the door when the time comes. Forget about baking bread, waiting on bread to rise. So it is a memorial of that night and the speed with which God acted to deliver his people. But there's more. It's not just that. And by the way, that's seven days to remember. There's a picture, too, of completeness. That's seven days for them to every day wake up and go, what did God do for us? Man, I really would like to have a bite of leavened bread today, but we're not eating leavened bread today because of what God did for us. Wow, can you believe what he did? I mean, he, he came through, he passed through, he saved us, and he brought us out of Egypt like that. He could have done that before the, even the first plague, but he brought glory to himself by striking and striking and striking Egypt. And then in a moment, he brought us out. Glory to God. Man, I would like to have a piece of leavened bread, but I just am really excited about what God has done for us. That was the heart of God's people As they every day for seven days remember what God had done. But as I said, there's more. In the Bible, leaven sometimes carries the connotation of the old way of life. The leaven, the old way. The evil that must now be put away. Nothing intrinsically wrong with leavened bread. The people of God ate leavened bread other times. But that it is a picture, it becomes a picture of the old way of life. Let me give you, I think, what is a really helpful and fitting quote from one commentator, John McKay. He says this, When a batch of bread was being baked, a relatively small quantity of leaven or yeast is added. You don't need much. And it works its way through the dough and causes it to rise. So by the way, you have to bring forward the yeast from before, right? You have to bring that forward from before. It's old stuff. It's old stuff brought forward and it moves through the new stuff. 
Anyway, I'll keep going. The instruction to banish leaven from their houses and to take none of it with them from Egypt was a gesture that symbolized leaving behind all Egyptian influences that might work their way through their lives and corrupt them. The old is out. The old is behind. The corruption of Egypt was to have no place among the Lord's people whom he had delivered from Egypt. So you see this emphasis on on the oldness. It wasn't just the, the haste and the speed with which God saved his people, though that's central. But it's also the imagery of the yeast, pulling the yeast from the old stuff and then putting that into the new. No, there's a cut. God's people are to put behind them the golden calves of Egypt. They're to put behind them all of the syncretism that they have adopted. And this is to be a new life as a new people. And it is in this vein that Paul brings up leaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You might have been wondering as we were reading through that, unless you caught these, these references in the middle there, what in the world? How does that passage have anything to do with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Maybe Walt thought that when he first got that passage uh, as he was looking through it. But we see here that this is the same emphasis that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. So let me just, a little background. There is a a brother who is engaged in sexual immorality among them, and they are just kind of boasting in it. You know, they're libertines. They're they're sort of, you know, maybe they're even thinking of themselves as being particularly gracious, particularly merciful, particularly kind to let this brother just kind of hang out and continue to do, or this, this named brother, to hang out and continue to do these things he's doing. And so he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you notice how Paul, and you might say, well, Paul's spiritualizing. No, he's, he's working with the fulfillment through Christ of this event. And what he's saying is that we as believers do, in fact, celebrate the Passover lamb and we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread as we live out the Christian life. So I'll go on. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore, listen to this, celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you hear how Paul is relating back to this feast? Not only does leaven represent the old way of life, it also spreads That's important. It spreads throughout the whole lump of dough. Unaddressed sin in the body, in one area, spreads to the whole. That's the principle of 1 Corinthians 5. And that's the reason that biblical churches practice church discipline. That is the reason why it is so important that gospel churches who look to Christ Our Passover lamb practice biblical, restorative, loving, but serious church discipline. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let sin sit in the body and it will spread. It doesn't sit. It doesn't stand still. It spreads. It multiplies throughout the whole And let me just get you to consider this by way of analogy for your own personal life. It's not the case that you can have one area of your life or one member of your body engaged in sin and it won't affect the whole. You can't compartmentalize your sin. You can't compartmentalize your life. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Pride in one area of life will show up in pride in all of life. Sexual immorality in little ways will show up in all kinds of bigger ways over time. And Satan doesn't like to let us see the spread. He's crafty. 
He's really good at, at covering the spread effect. He wants us to just see everything as kind of a one-off thing. He wants us to see everything as, as isolated and so that we can, we can pet sin as a church or as an individual. We can just, or as a gospel community group, we can, we can pet it. We can just sort of boast as the Corinthians and how gracious we are in letting it remain, bearing long with it. No, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So how do we celebrate the feast of unleavened bread? Well, Paul says here, in light of Christ, our Passover lamb, that we celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a life of integrity, biblical fidelity, and genuine love for one another. Not just love in word. There's a kind of love that's not love at all. It's just fear of man. It's just people-pleasing. It's just wanting to be perceived as nice. There's a kind of love that is not love. Love, remember Romans 12, abhors what is evil. That's what it means to love. When Christ was on the cross, he was abhorring what is evil in us as he paid for our sins. He was loving us by abhorring what is evil and dying for it that we might be saved from all that is evil. This is what it means for us to celebrate the festival. So cleanse out the old and be new people. The new people that we are. And Paul says that here. As you really are unleavened. He's saying to the Corinthians. You really are unleavened. Because you really are in Christ. God's people. Don't do this. Be who you are. Be who you are. The, the call of holiness. The call of godliness. The call of all the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. Is really just a call to be who we are. It's really just a call to live out our identity in Jesus Christ. And notice in our passage the care that is taken. Look at verse 15 again. Remove leaven out of your houses. So it's so serious that leaven is, to be, is, no, is not to be found anywhere. It's not just don't eat the leaven. It's just get it out the door. No leaven even in the house. No leaven there to tempt you. I might put a little bit of this in my, in my bread, in my dough. Or, or I, you know, it's just there. I'm going to sort of leave it open and maybe those, those spores will just sort of spread even in the room. No. Remove it out of your houses. Do we think about sin that way? It's not just don't do it. It's don't have it anywhere around. Don't keep it in the cupboard. Don't put it in the closet. Don't hide it under the bed like our kids clean their rooms. No, that's not how we live the Christian life. We throw it out the house. We get rid of it. It's gone. Unleavened living. Finally, we come to the double motivation. So we've seen the perpetual observance, the specific directives, and then finally here as we end, the double motivation. These commands and instructions from Yahweh come with a built-in motivation. They're not just given and then there you go. It's a built-in motivation. And what we find here is that it is a double motivation. And notice this. This is really important for our understanding of how we're sanctified and grow in the Christian life. It's a double motivation. There's a warning and a why. A warning and a why. So let's look first at the warning. Verse 15. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now notice, this is repeated again in verse 19b. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. All of God's people and all of those dwelling among God's people must keep the feast. All must avoid eating leaven. However, if they do not, if they, are, if they are like Achan in Jericho, 
stealing those things devoted to the Lord, if, if, if they determine that they will just kind of do their own thing, irregardless of what God has commanded, then we are told here that they will be cut off from their people. Now, it's not entirely clear all that's in view here. At least it means expulsion, possibly the death penalty, as we see with other things as we read through the Old Testament, as we read through the the Torah, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But it's at the very least, it's expulsion from the community, excommunication, you could say, to look at 1 Corinthians 5. Do not do this. To not do this is to show yourself faithless. And that's really the key here. To not listen to this command, to not refrain from leavened bread, is to show yourself faithless as one who is not trusting in the Lord. It is to show that you have already departed from the covenant community in your own heart. And isn't that, isn't that the case, that excommunication or expulsion is a visual of what's already happened? The person in their own sin has already driven, as it were, their own hearts out of the community or ridden a camel out of the community. They have departed from the covenant. And that must be met with expulsion from the community in full. The reality going on in the heart must be met with the reality realized visually. This is the warning side of the motivation. It draws the people towards obedience. It tells the covenant community, it tells the people of God, look, if you do not obey the Lord, if you do not listen to God's instruction, this is what will happen to you. Destruction. It draws the people towards obedience by telling them what will happen. If they turn away or drift away or to use the language of Hebrews, trample underfoot the Lord. It tells the people what will happen. You know, Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 to 30 is really in the same vein. Jesus says about the right eye, remember the right eye and the right hand? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It would be better. For you to enter into the rest of your life without an eye, without a member, than for your entire self to be thrown into hell. Who's he talking to? Well, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we're told. He's talking to his followers, his disciples, his learners, those who are listening to him and following him. This is a warning to the covenant community, just as we find here. Listen, if your eye is causing you to sin and you keep going down that road, Know that hell awaits. This is exactly what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, Do you not know that if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? There are warnings everywhere in the New Testament for the covenant community. Warnings that hell awaits if we choose in our hearts to keep the eye and lose the soul. If we choose in our hearts to keep the right hand and lose the soul. As I said, these are throughout the New Testament. There is the danger of falling away. So we are told in many ways to be watchful and zealous. And this is just something we have to reckon with. Our security is not taken away by this. Our assurance of salvation is not taken away by this. And this is why. Because when God's people, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, read these things, it's not, although it does jar us and unsettle us, especially if our hearts are worldly, what it does to us is it spurs us on in the Lord. Notice this, the warnings of God to persevere are God's very means of preserving us so that we do persevere. This is how God does it. He does it by instructing us and warning us and saying, no, 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 no. Come out of the road. Don't touch that knife. Don't eat that cascade pod. Just like we work with our kids. No, don't do it. God warns us. 
If you do that, you could die. If you do that, you could end up in hell. I once heard John Piper preach a sermon on divorce. And he was calling people. He said, if you are committed to divorcing in rebellion against God's word, know this. That's a path to hell. And that's the truth. We sin so flippantly as though it's just so sure and so certain and so secure. And so we can just live any old way. That's not biblical gospel living. Biblical gospel living always sits under these warnings to persevere, to not drift away, to not fall away, to not spill over into hell. So let me ask you, in what ways do you not live a warning-oriented Christian life? We are to be assured. The end of Romans 8 is probably one of the most glorious pictures of this in all of Scripture. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're told, the beginning of Philippians, that we'll persevere until the end. John 10 tells us that Christ holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And the Father, who is greater than all, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And yet we're warned. And yet we're warned. Do you live a non-warning-oriented Christian life? To do so is to be very out of touch with the New Testament. Second, the why. We see the warning. As we think about the double motivation, we see the warning, but we also see the why. Back to verse 14. We read that it is a feast to the Lord. It is something done to the Lord. In praise, who is the Lord? Verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And then here's the reason. For. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Peter tells us that we should live our time. We should live. You ever, you ever read this? First Peter 1. We should live our, as our, our life here. Our, our, during our stay here. In fear. Because God is our judge. What do we do with that? We know that fear has been set aside, that God has has given us grace, and we are in Christ Jesus, and yet Peter says that, the apostle. But Peter also has much to say about what God has done for us in Christ. We are not motivated simply by fear and trembling. We are not motivated simply because we're going to stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. We're not motivated simply by that, though we are motivated by that in part more gloriously and more significantly and all-encompassingly, we are motivated by the why. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe. As Christians, we're motivated by the love of God. That's what motivates us. That's what pushes us forward in obedience. That's what pushes us forward in the dirt to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what pushes us out into the most awkward of encounters with lost people to tell them the gospel of Christ. That's what pushes us into all those difficult sacrificial things that Christ calls us to. It's the love of God for us in Christ. By his grace, towards us. We serve the Lord faithfully because of our gratitude for all that he has done for us through Christ. This is the greatest motivation, and it should drive all that we do in the Christian life. So let me just leave you with this. As you carry out your fathering, your mothering, your husbanding, wifing, working, churching, whatever else, as we carry out all of life, are these two motivators in view? Do we hear the warning? Or have we grown soft and worldly toward the warning? And do we hear the why? Louder and louder and louder until Christ returns. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for challenging us and encouraging us, comforting us. Lord, for calling us to live as the people we already are. Lord, help us manifest our identity practically in every sphere of life. Help us see ways that we are allowing a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. Individually, in families, in our church, Lord, protect us. Lord, unless you preserve us, we will all fall away. We praise you for the promise of John 17 that you will keep us and your Father will keep us, Lord Jesus. We praise you that none of us will fall out of your hand. Thank you, Lord, that we can at the same time be warned and spurred on and yet still have assurance of salvation. What a mystery this even is. That we can be called to this fear and trembling kind of life, recognizing you as judge and yet at the same time be called to this life of of peaceful rest, grace and peace to the people of God. Paul often says, we praise you, Lord, that both are true in this mysterious kind of way and we live out both realities, Lord. Help us be wise. Help us not to be lazy. Help us not to be slothful in zeal, but to be fervent in spirit. Help us serve the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.